What's good, everybody? It is once again your very best friend and support partner after losses to the Sharks. You are, of course, listening to Beneath the Frozen Sea, the Davy Jones Locker Room.com podcast. My name is Sky, and boy, howdy, do we have some stuff to go over. Last week was the last few games before the All-Star break, and every last one of them provided absolutely no comfort to those who are concerned about the overall health of the team going forward as a competitive entity. And I admit, I had a very strange week. I had to basically unscrew up my entire sleep schedule just so that I could do my meat space job and then also do this. So I was a little cranky at the Kraken for not putting away opponents in the way I felt like they should. But in fairness, we had to wait an awful long time to watch the Kraken break their losing streak against the Chicago Blackhawks. And it was closer than it probably should have been. That was sort of the theme of the week leading up to the All-Star Game, is this whole week they have been playing games that were much closer than they had any right to be. And this includes a 6-2 win, for the record. It starts with that 6-2 win over Chicago. Now, on its face, if you're just looking at the base-level stats, if you're looking at the box score on NHL.com, you get a pretty positive impression of how they played. They did exactly what you're supposed to do when you play the Chicago Blackhawks, which is beat them. If you watched the game, on the other hand, you know that's a different story. They did score, and they had some pretty darn good offense. The Blackhawks actually led the game in shots. They led the game in possession the entire time, and the Kraken just looked completely out of sorts. They were playing passive, they were playing extremely down to their competition, and had the Blackhawks not just had some of the worst defense I have ever seen in my whole life, like, I have watched an awful lot of hockey, and I've also watched some bad teams, for the record, and it's not just, oh, the Arizona Coyotes are bad or all that. No, the Coyotes have been mediocre. That's even worse than being bad. I have seen some truly heinous hockey in my lifespan. I have never seen a defense that bad before. The only team that I think could have possibly beaten it, unfortunately beat the Kraken, but we will get there. Main point, the Chicago Blackhawks actually controlled that game. It was by the grace of Joey Decord that they were able to get good save after good save. They were able to have their bad habits covered for and as such, they got some pretty solid play out of guys like Tomas Tatar and Jared McCann. Jared McCann, who I will talk about later on after we discuss this whole thing, is fixed. There's, there's nothing else for me to say. He's good. He's fine now. Digression over. They beat the Blackhawks. Move on. Now they had to play the St. Louis Blues. Given the week as it stands, together, I still think this is the game that makes me the maddest. More than the San Jose game more than spending an awful lot of time chasing the Blackhawks around and losing 3-1 to a Toronto team that I just don't think is very good, and it's the entire fault of their general manager. More than all those, this is the one that pissed me off the most. And the reason is, it draws me no pleasure to say this, they were playing great hockey the whole game. The entire first period, most of the second period, they were up St. Louis's nose. They were taking it to them. They were not being passive. They had gotten their entire game together. And then their penalty kill 
went 0 for 2. St. Louis's first goal was scored on the power play, and so was their second. That meant that a 3-1 game, for a good portion of it, was now 3-2. All they needed was one shot. That is energy. That is momentum. And then they gave it to him. They gave Pavel Buchnevich the opportunity he needed. They were scrambling in their zone early, and then it was tied because of Pavel Buchnevich. And to their credit, I will give them their credit, they turned the screws on St. Louis when that happened. They knew they couldn't let this get out of hand. And they got to overtime, but then they played like ass. The Blues could smell blood in the water. All they had to do was get one guy open, because again... Again, it's happening. This team is basically only good at 5-on-5, and they're not even all that good at 5-on-5. They lacked a killer instinct, they lacked finish, and they lacked presence of mind. That overtime is not a fun rewatch, if you're a Kraken fan. They looked absolutely out of sorts. The Blues knew what was at stake. The Kraken played like they had no idea. And then Pavel Buchnevich gets to be the hero, taking two critical points because those teams were basically neck and neck in the standings at that point. And the Kraken just let them slip through their fingers. Literally let them slip through their fingers on a penalty kill. Something they have otherwise been okay at. Mercifully, they get their act together, they play the Columbus Blue Jackets. They let Cole Sillinger know what exactly they think of his damaging of Matty Beneers, which was very good to see. I'm glad that those guys were willing to get out there and make it clear you cannot hurt their guys anymore. They got two goals out of Jordan Eberle. Good. I always like to see that. Another Jared McCann. Good night. He had two points. Good stuff. But again, they got up in the game, and they got sloppy. Against the Blue Jackets of all teams. The Blue Jackets are bad, but they work hard. That's really the only thing they know how to do. They play hockey as though they're trying to move a boulder up a mountain. And you cannot give a team that is willing to try so very hard to overcome their talent deficit, that kind of time and energy. You have to pin them in their own end and break their will. And they didn't do that. Second night. Which leads us to yesterday. I'm sure you've already seen the game recap, if you've been listening to this. I'm sure you watched the game. It was the last game they were going to play before the All-Star break. That was going to be the last thought in everybody's head going into the All-Star break. And the San Jose Sharks who are bad at just about everything, beat the Seattle Kraken in a 2-0 shutout. This was a probably should-win game. I'm not going to say must-win, because I don't think there's going to be must-win games until, like, March. Everyone in the West is too tightly compacted, and the LA Kings are starting to fall, and that means that the picture is just becoming muddier and muddier and muddier. But it was entirely within the Kraken's grasp to make it a little clearer for themselves. If they hang on and win that St. Louis game, you're tied with them. Beat the Blue Jackets, you're ahead of them. You beat the San Jose Sharks, you're way ahead of them. Especially knowing now that the Jackets and the Blues played each other, and the Jackets won. Won nothing. That was critical points you could have had. Even if everything but the San Jose game loss happened. Even if everything changed except the score on the San Jose game was reversed, that's still a more comfortable position to be in than the one you're in now. And I will give the actual winner of that game, Mackenzie Blackwood, endless credit. He played his heart and soul out. But again, Kraken right on top of him. 
The Kraken got good shots through, they got great opportunities, their passing was sloppy, and they were sloppy in their own end, especially going into the third period. No finish. No killer instinct. And we have seen this happen before. I have seen it happen before. I saw this kind of thing happen last year. The Kraken played tons of games where they could have solidified position or made their position more comfortable in the Pacific Division, or in the wild card, or in any place that they were in the standings. And they failed. Nine times out of ten they failed. Until they finally got their act together. Even more frustratingly, it was usually against teams like the Sharks, who were not very good, or the Canucks, who were not very good up until this year. And I guess it comes down to the basic stuff that's always been true of them. They need depth scoring or they're not going to win. They need everyone on their defense to play well or none of them are. And they need league average goaltending, which they've been getting. This is actually better than what they've been getting last year. It's the Grubauer problem writ large where he'll play fine, he'll play okay, but then they just won't create any goals for him. They won't finish. They won't show killer instinct. And that's the frustrating part because otherwise they'll play a decent game. But then crap like what happens in the St. Louis game happens. Or they won't score a goal against one of the worst teams in the league. It's just so frustrating, man. Because I can see the upside here. We know what to fix. The season is far from over. Everything is so bunched up in the middle of the Western Conference right now that nobody really knows who's actually good and who's just riding a shooting bender. They go on like a three, four game winning streak. They'll be fine. They've got tons of cap space. They've got tons of opportunity to make this team better. They've got a bunch of veterans that they could ship out for better pieces. And Ron Francis is very good at running the waiver wire and taking chances on dudes that are clearly better than they look. It's just frustrating because I'm not sure there's an obvious answer other than get more goal scoring and maybe a defenseman or two. Preferably one that can skate because you're still in a division with the Oilers and the Knights. Not super big fan of that because I got a bunch of ICBMs at forward and you can't really catch them by trying to throw a body check that just opens up a lane. It's frustrating is the point. Anyway, the Kraken are off for the next week. Oliver Bjorkstrand is in Toronto for the All-Star Game. I am sure he is just having a wonderful time missing San Diego. After which, the Kraken are on a four-game road trip against a bunch of Metropolitan foes and also the Boston Bruins. There are a lot of beatable foes on that road trip too. I think it would be in their best interest to start winning them. So, next big thing on the NHL schedule past the All-Star break is the NHL trade deadline. That is just a mere Five weeks away, and as time has gone on, it has become abundantly clear that that is mostly just a suggestion. Teams have begun trading earlier and earlier from the trade deadline, which is made for some pretty crappy deadline days, honestly. But I digress. Promised you that we would talk about what should the Kraken be doing with themselves after the All-Star break. And now, with that on the line, we need to start thinking about the trade deadline. And whenever you do that, the first thing you have to do is take stock of what you have to work with. And what the Kraken have to work with is actually pretty good. They are one of a vanishingly small number of teams with cap space going into the deadline. They will have $6.4 million in actual cap space at the deadline. If they wanted to make a move now, they still have a pretty decent window. They've got 3.4 million as their current cap space. They've got eight picks in the upcoming draft with an extra from Toronto and Calgary, though the Calgary pick is probably not nearly as valuable as the Toronto. And they have a rapidly improving prospect system. And that's all before you get to the actual team itself, which does have some intriguing pieces. 
For pure rentals, the Kraken have a couple of pretty big names on this roster. Jordan Eberle sticks out as somebody who needs another contract and is starting to get up there in years, although I really like him, so I really don't know if I want to actually see him leave. And Alex Wenberg, who's starting to find a real rhythm for himself. He's still having a little bit of shooting struggles, but he also is a big part of this offense and is still in need of a contract for next year. And the final guy who needs a new contract at the end of the year is Justin Schultz. He is a depth defenseman on the third pair, who definitely plays like it. Which I admit is a little unfair, but in fairness, uh, we've been going through it with him for a little bit now, and I'm just getting tired of it. Either way, you have a couple of big trade ships, but you also have some questions you need to ask if you plan to use them. The big one is, of course, what are you replacing them with? Moving on from Wenberg, even though he has been struggling a little more than, say, Jordan Eberle has, is a tight proposition because the biggest area of need that this team has right now is at center, and specifically scoring. They lost Matty for a little bit, and he's also been going through a rough year. Alex Wenberg's been having a weird year. Yanni Gord is probably the best playing center they have right now, and that's a little weird for a third liner to be doing that. And due to pure Edward Belmar's injuries, they haven't really been able to have a fully functional fourth line for a little while now. The only way I think you could actually make that work for you is if you decided that it was time for Shane Wright to take the job full time. Shane has been, for the record, a tremendous center down in Coachella Valley, and it looks like that he's just about ready. It's just a matter of where he would play in the lineup. And it's not really a plug-and-play kind of thing. You have a working third line, I think it's actually probably the best line you have, and playing him on the fourth line is just wasting his talents. If you're going to play him in the NHL, you need him playing more than 10-plus minutes a night. And the only space for him I could think of is maybe as a top six guy. I know there's a lot of people who have called for uh, Shane Wright's expectations to be massively downgraded so that he's just a, you know, reasonable middle six player. But the thing is, is the middle six still involves being in your top six. And the top six right now is enormously mercurial. We know what we have in that group. We just don't know what we have in them if they have, say, a different center. And I am not trying to move Wenberg out the door. I like him. I think he brings something very valuable to the team. It's just, right now, he's struggling, and he's going to need money in the near future. Do you really want to start paying for Alex Wenberg in his 30s? Do you really think this is just some kind of inordinate shooting slump, and he's going to come back from the dead? That's a hard question to ask, especially when a lot of your centers are not very good at the face-off dot right now, and he is an exceptionally bad case of it. Do you think that's a skill that gets better with age? Whatever you decide there, I really hope you make that decision soon because, frankly, there's a lot of good center depth coming for this team that probably precludes the idea of him getting to stay. And that's a shame. I do like Wenberg. I like Wenberg a lot, but I just don't know if sticking with him long term is a good option, especially what we're seeing in a down year. That said, he's a great playmaker and he would make for a good player on a number of different teams. It's just a matter of whether or not Ron Francis thinks that it should be in deep blue. Justin Schultz, I'm a little back and forth on. He definitely fills a need, but I think Riker Evans also fulfills that need pretty well. It's just a matter of trying to get someone to actually take him. He has been enormously inconsistent as a defenseman this year, and as a result, I'm not quite certain that he's quite the trade ship that he could be. And as a result, if you wanted to get him on a different team, I think you'd have to do a little bit of cajoling. 
After all, Schultz is 33, and he's currently in the bottom pair, and he's not really a major part of the defense. It's just, yeah, he's someone that you're going to have to convince to take from you if you want to move him. So now we come to the big prize. Jordan Eberle. Ebbs has been going through a bit of a down year, but a down year for him is still pretty good. He's fifth on the team in overall points. He's one of the best playmakers on the team, and he's enormously unlucky. I believe his shooting luck this year is among the worst on a team that is already having a lot of shooting luck problems. Otherwise, he is an absolute possession monster, and he is a player that you absolutely should want to hang on to. So it makes a very awkward point. Currently speaking, there really isn't much to suggest that any winger that you could bring in is better than Jordan Everlay. So you don't want to move on from him. Don't, in fact. But he is a UFA, meaning you will have to bid for his services if you don't want to give him an in-season extension, which could always come. It could always come for any one of these players. But on the off chance that it doesn't come, you have a unique opportunity here to absolutely clean out some team's prospect system and clean them out from picks. Today, while I was recording this, the Vancouver Canucks cleaned out their prospect system and their picks and gave Andre Kuzmenko to their rival, their hated rival, the Calgary Flames. All of that for one player. In fairness, it was for a position of need. But that was one player, and the price was set today. If you want to get involved, now is the time to do it, because it is clear any team that can try and find some advantage from a trade will go in to do it. And they will go all the way in to do it. So what do you do? Well, knowing what I know about Ron Francis, knowing what I know about how he's run the team, it's going to be a little quiet because I think the evaluation period is here. Again, had they won the games they were supposed to win, I think this would be maybe one or two trades, maybe see if you can get someone on waivers who can be a surprise fit. You know, normal Ron Francis stuff, finding money wherever you can. But now... Given that you are so close to being both in and out of the wild card for good, these points start to matter. And if they start slipping up, there is a non-zero chance that their ability to make the playoffs will go from difficult to impossible quickly. And if you can make the playoffs, then obviously you gotta start selling so that you can make the playoffs next year. But if you start winning, eh, maybe this was just a bad stretch, and you just have to keep pace and make small tweaks. Therefore... I think this road trip and the upcoming homestand after that are going to be very instructive. If it starts becoming clear that the Kraken may not have it this year and the wild card becomes a little too hard for them to get into, I imagine that we will start to see some movement on whether or not a player is about to get traded. And I imagine that they will try to get as many picks and as many prospects back as they can. And I imagine Wenberg and Eberle are going to be the big talking points going into those phone conversations. But if they start winning, I imagine it's going to be a lot more casual. They're probably not going to do any deals that can't be done on trade deadline day, and they're all going to be very depth-related, which I imagine is going to be a little disappointing for some people. To that I say, there is no reason to break up a good thing while it is winning. You just have to keep making it good. But they're only going to get their answer on which way to go, after the All-Star break. It's up to the Kraken to decide how that goes for them. 
And personally, I think that this is a time to maybe move on from one or two of your older players and just get a boatload of picks back because it seems like everybody is gearing up to spend a king's ransom for any sort of advantage right now. But as I said, Kraken have to show what they're made of over the next two weeks because the three weeks after that, going to be an awful lot of Ron Francis on the phone, and only the Kraken can decide whether or not he is talking about giving them help or breaking them up. There's a lot of opportunity coming for the Kraken in the upcoming weeks, but boy howdy, for their young players, for those guys down in the AHL and Coachella, it has been nothing but a gravy train. They're second in division, they have the they score the most goals out of any team in the AHL Pacific, and it is a two-man race to see who can have the most goals by the end of the year, and that is, of course, Shane Wright taking on Max McCormick as they ride this team into the playoffs handily now. McCormick is currently in the lead with 18, but right behind him is Shane Wright with 17. And after this game against the Wranglers, they could very well be once again at the very top of the Pacific Division. Keep it up, boys. I have nothing but positive things to say about you right now. Also, take a look at this kid, Vili Ottavainen. He's only got 18 points, but that's good for the team lead on defense and scoring. That's better than what Riker Evans is doing. Obviously, we're looking for defensive structure, but I think there's something about Ottavainen that's very intriguing if you want to show a player who could maybe fit the Vince Dunn mold for the future. Either way, well done by the Coachella Valley. I hope to see them at the top of the division by the time you wake up to this podcast. All right. We had 21 straight minutes about the trade deadline and what they were going to do, as I promised. And then the roof caved in, which means that I have something very serious to talk about. And so, as such, I need to offer a content warning. Uh, What I am going to be talking about is the 2018 Canadian World Junior Team, and as such, I am going to be bringing up sexual assault. If you have problems with sexual assault, if you don't, if you find descriptions of sexual assault in all its forms upsetting, now's a good time to fast forward. You can go to exactly the 28-29 minute mark for when we leave this discussion for good. And again, I apologize, this is kind of a hard right turn, but this is important and you need to know about this. So, this is your last chance. Let's dig into it. Over the last couple of years, Hockey Canada has deservedly so been under fire for failing to address concerns of sexual assault or, in fact, using money that was going from registrations to their programs to cover up for sexual assault. The organization basically had to clean house and, as of right now, is under continued scrutiny, as well as a number of plaintiffs in civil and criminal lawsuits asking for justice or restitution for a number of their teams that have been alleged to have either caused, aided, or abetted sexual assault by the players. But the team in specific that we are looking at now is the 2018 team. A civil lawsuit was filed in the Court of Ontario. Eight players on the 2018 World Junior Team allegedly coerced the defendant into a prolonged sexual encounter, intimidating her into saying that she was sober and preventing her from leaving. The original case was investigated by the London police and dropped fairly quickly as they felt there was no chargeable evidence that they could find. However, after an internal review that lasted the entirety of 2022, the London police found that indeed they did have enough evidence to charge these players. And as such, 
reopened the case, and began drawing up charges. The NHL stated that they would conduct their own individual investigation, of which the findings have not been published yet. The teams were told ahead of time that many players from that team could very well end up charged, and as a result, many of them were either traded or left the NHL entirely. About a week ago, the London police announced that they would be announcing the official charges, and coincidentally, around the same time, a number of players began to leave their teams for extended personal reasons, and at least in one case, was told to have left the team for mental health reasons. And on Tuesday afternoon, we received the list from TSN's Rick Westhead of the players charged, most of whom had already left their teams well ahead of time and were in fact the ones who had left the team previously for quote-unquote personal reasons. The list is as follows. Alex Formanton, playing currently in Sweden. Cal Foote and Michael McLeod, currently playing for the New Jersey Devils. Dylan Dubé, playing for the Calgary Flames. And Carter Hart, playing for the Philadelphia Flyers. It is not clear what happens to the other three players, although I presume that they will be involved in some manner, one way or the other. As for what happens next, it is unclear, to put it mildly. Gary Bettman is expected to speak at the All-Star Game, and it is expected that he will have comments on what happened here and on the NHL investigation if they happen to have any new information that they would like to give the London police. As for the legal case itself, it is also unclear what happens next. The judicial system in Ontario is significantly backed up due to a lack of judges who can preside over criminal cases. And as such, it could be over a year before we see any movement on the subject. Higher profile cases can be brought to the front of the line, but it is not known exactly what the criterion for that could be. And obviously, for the players involved, there is the general threat of jail time if they are found guilty. And apparently the London police have evidence to suggest that there could be a case. As for my opinion... On such a heady thing, obviously this is a very heinous crime that has been committed against a woman that has been attempted to be paid off, has created a massive internal review for an entire police department, and now potentially has to relive the sordid details of one of the worst nights of their lives. I feel for the defendant, and I really hope that when we finally get around to trying this, justice can be done for her. As for the players, man, you'd better hope your lawyer's good. Sure, I could say all sorts of things about innocent until proven guilty, but that's the thing. I'm an American. I am not Ontarioan. I am not from Canada. Further, I am not on the London, Ontario Police Department, who decided that, in fact, they did have quite a bit of evidence that they could use to actually charge these men. A grand total of five years later, and I'd love to know what the hell changed. That sounds like a massive dereliction of duty. I'd certainly like to hear from Hockey Canada, who has said absolutely nothing about this whole situation up to this point. Especially considering these eight players were their charges when this event happened. But here's what I do know. I know that junior hockey culture often insulates its players from consequence. Even if they seriously deserve it, for doing something bad. If you need an American analog, think about the way that high school football players sometimes get protected by smaller town communities who want their football team to be good. And I know that statistically, this is more than likely to have happened, but the case was poorly handled by a police force that didn't feel tremendously interested 
in actually believing the victim, something that is unfortunately very, very common in these kind of cases. If you want to be mad at the way your current culture is, go look up at the local sexual assault statistics. The ones in Ontario alone will draw your blood into a boil. The ones in Washington State will drive you nuts. So yeah, I'm afraid the burden of proof is on these players to prove that they weren't there or they were innocent of this whole thing. Or at the very least, they're legal teams. Because I know hockey players, and frankly, they don't make tremendously great arguments on their own. I just hope that justice is done, and we can get on a road that not just improves Hockey Canada and the sport of hockey in general, but also the way that sexual assault in Canada and in the United States is more seriously handled. Painful though it may be, I think we will be a much better people if we can get to that point. Once again, Gary Bettman is expected to speak at the All-Star Game, and the London police are expected to speak on Monday, February 5th, to discuss the longer-term reasoning for these charges. Well, that was a lot, and not all of it was very fun, and I think that is as good a time as any to call it. This is a big, long podcast, and I was talking about a lot of stuff today, and not all of it was very positive. But I think it's important to get the bad news with the good. It really reminds you that this is a long tapestry. Not just news in general, but sports. Anyway, you can listen to Beneath the Frozen Sea wherever you get your podcasts. I know a lot of you get it on Apple Music. But for those of you who don't, we appreciate you just as much as the Apple folks. And if you like the audio, I'm sure you'll love the written portion. Why don't you go check out DavyJonesLockerRoom.com as we meticulously and expertly preview, cover, and recap every Seattle Kraken game, as well as provide some of the best analysis that money can provide. And if you really want to pay for it, we've got a tip jar under every single one of our posts. And you can find us on twitter.com as DavyJonesLR. You can also find Davy Jones Locker Room on threads and on Blue Sky at DavyJonesLR. And hey, why don't you check out our YouTube page, where Allison Ballard has been doing some excellent video breakdowns of just why the Kraken are winning or losing games. That's it for me. My name is Sky once again. Thank you all for listening. And as always, keep calm and post Zoidberg when we win. Go Kraken! <laughs>